Hey guys, welcome to Precision Nutrition's Eat, Move, and Live Better podcast. I'm Dr. John Berardi, co-founder of Precision Nutrition, and if you're not familiar with us, over the last 15 years, we've become the world's largest online nutrition, fitness, and health coaching company. Through that time, as you can imagine, we've watched fad diets and fitness crazes come and go. But when the fads have failed and the crazes died out and people just want something that works, they turn to Precision Nutrition for things like expert coaching, guided mentorship, and online support. In this podcast, which is a mix of recorded articles, interviews, and roundtable discussions, myself and my Precision Nutrition colleagues will help make the whole nutrition, fitness, and health process work for you. Ideally, you'll discover that eating, moving, and living well can be easy and enjoyable for now and into the future. So let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Bryce from Precision Nutrition, and today I'm reading the article, Why Clean Eating is Bad for You, The Damaging Psychology Behind the Latest Health Fad, by James Heathers, PhD. Clean eating is just the latest in a long line of crazy ways to moralize what we eat. In today's article, James shows us how to stop the madness and recover your relationship with food. Here's what James has to tell us. Far into the future, a hand opens a book called A Comprehensive History of Food. A pair of eyes reads the following. At that point in history, the technology was unprecedented. Information creation and sharing changed completely, including information about food and dieting. A new market immediately sprung up for advice about how to eat and what to eat. Doctors and scientists competed with different brands of diets. Their prescriptions for how to eat became increasingly extreme and contradictory. The public became confused by the mixed messages. Soon, the comedians of the day were making fun of the indecision of the so-called scholars who wrote the books that continually contradicted each other. A pervasive sense of cynicism took over. What should we eat? No one, it was generally assumed, really knew. So here's a question for you. At the close of the passage we just read, as the comedians are having their field day, what year is it? Ready for the answer? Wait for it. Are you perhaps thinking 2009-2011? You probably are. I know I was. And if so, you're wrong. The right answer is about 1615. 400 years ago. The unprecedented technology the book refers to is the printing press. The original Gutenberg press spread through Europe around 1490 to 1510. The market for diet books by famous physicians happened at the same time. Once mass production of written literature started in Europe, books about how and what to eat immediately became extremely popular. Then, as now, the books offered confusing and contradictory advice. Interestingly, these convoluted medieval directives on how to eat started to conflict with the way people had traditionally eaten for centuries. Indeed, the evidence is written in Miguel de Cervantes' famous novel, Don Quixote. The second volume of the book was published in 1615. In it, Sancho Panza, a governor, sits down to a nice meal, and soon a doctor arrives to ensure that his patient doesn't eat anything detrimental. As the chef sends out delicious-looking dishes, the doctor waves a whalebone wand to have each removed in quick succession. It reads, I attend at his meals to let him eat what I think convenient for him, and to remove what I imagine to be prejudicial to him and offensive to his stomach. Therefore I now ordered the fruit to be taken away, because it is much too moist. 
and the other dish because it is much too hot, and over-seasoned with spices, which increase thirst. And he that drinks much destroys and consumes the radical moisture of which the life consists. That's right, through his own extreme fussiness and anxiety and specialized knowledge, this doctor, terrified of partridge and onions and potatoes, doesn't actually allow anyone to eat anything. 400 years later, that's right, here and now, an image goes viral, and with it is the caption, About to eat my vegan, gluten-free, soy-free, antibiotics-free, raw, non-GMO, organic, fat-free, low-carb dinner. And of course the image is a plate with ice cubes on it. Now the point of all this should be painfully obvious. The way the health and fitness industry talks about food, weight, and eating is in shambles. We paralyze ourselves with set after set of new rules. We make these rules from contradictory systems that we don't understand and we feel a creeping cynicism. No one who tells me what to eat actually knows what the hell they're talking about. This anxiety and confusion isn't new. We've already been there. We already did this. We do it over and over again. Mind you, at least they had an excuse during the Renaissance. Remember, 1615 is 30 years before the birth of Isaac Newton. It was quite literally the pre-scientific era. Today, we have genomics and glucose clamps and calorie meters and and microbiological assays, and public health surveys, and the World Health Organization, and Western blots, and RDs, MDs, NDs, RNs, and PhDs, and billions of dollars of public money, and billions of dollars of your money. And Sancho Panza's doctor is still on the TV telling us what to do. Now back when I was a psychology student, my instructor turned to me and asked, would you wear Hitler's cardigan? I thought about it. Hitler's cardigan? I guess I would. The question traveled around the room. What about you? And you? Would you? No, 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 no. And it was just me and one other guy who said yes. Two out of about 20. The rest of the room, filled with people who are now a little unsure about both of us, all said no. So consider this for a moment. The cardigan itself is utterly blameless. It's made of wool or acrylic keeps you warm, it has buttons, and it looks ridiculous on men between the ages of 12 and 60. If this sweater is clean, there's literally nothing in or on it that can sully, much less give me Hitlerishness. The cardigan itself has no memory, no consciousness. It has no malice, no genocidal thoughts. The act of putting it on does nothing whatsoever except keep you warm and make you look like Mr. Rogers. The cardigan is merely a passenger in life's great adventure. But if we know it was Hitler's cardigan, our eyes widen and we back away. In psychology, this is called the contagion heuristic. There are lots of examples of it. Most people wouldn't, for instance, drink apple juice out of a perfectly sterilized bedpan, drink juice from a glass that had previously held a perfectly sterilized cockroach, eat soup that was stirred with a brand new comb, or eat chocolate fudge shaped like a pile of doggy doo. In other words, we feel like impurity or dirtiness, can infect or contaminate objects, regardless of whether those objects are actually clean. Now, first observed in the 1800s by European anthropologists and ethnographers studying various civilizations, the idea of impurity is important to humans symbolically, and food is particularly symbolic. Food is intimate. We put it inside us. It literally becomes us. Symbolism and meaning are constant condiments. 
So it makes sense that our disgust reflex, which is related to believing something is impure, responds strongly to foods we see as unclean. Yet, of course, there's nothing actually dangerous or diseased about poop-shaped chocolate or a clean comb in our soup. Only our beliefs make it so. We give certain things magical powers to disgust us. These magical powers make it seem logical to avoid something gross, even when there's no rational basis for that avoidance. But who cares? <laughs> so what if most people don't like cockroach glasses or bedpan cocktails? It seems fair. The problem is that people don't stop at their own personal choice of drink container or chocolate configuration. We tend to turn these ideas about purity, naturalness, and contamination into something more powerful. In other words, we turn it into morality. Disgust is a visceral emotion, more an instinctive sensation than a conscious feeling, that polices our boundaries and beliefs, ever vigilant for contaminants. I've eaten three truly disgusting things in my life. Fermented Icelandic shark, pressed sheep's testicles pickled in sour whey, another Icelandic delicacy, and Danish salted licorice. All three were extraordinary experiences. The fermented Icelandic shark smells like a thousand hospital floors and tastes like you threw a fish up into your mouth. The pressed sheep's testicles pickled in sour whey tastes like a kitchen sponge soaked in stomach acid and sour milk. And the Danish salted licorice? Well, it might be nice if it just wasn't 40,000 times too strong. It's like the difference between lemonade and being slowly suffocated under a truckload of lemons, and it was actually the only one I spat out. I can vividly remember these tastes and textures so clearly my hair stands on end as I write this. And here's what to take from this. Disgust helps us survive. Disgust is instinct. It helps us avoid spoiled or pathogenic food. Indeed, the word disgust, which comes from the Latin gustus, or taste, literally means to reject the taste of something. Disgust is also culture and habit. Disgust reflects our taste preferences, which are learned rather than innate. To this end, food has long been an important part of group identity. As far back as 2,000 years ago, the ancient Greek geographer Strabo used diet-based shorthand for tribes, root eaters, seed eaters, turtle eaters, and so forth. But when paired with a sense of disgust, these categorizations end up as insults. For instance, a few years ago, an Italian chef prepared, on television, a traditional Tuscan dish of, and I'm warning you that you won't like this, fried cat. Yeah, it's this dish that's the origin of an Italian insult for Tuscans, mangiagatti, or cat eaters. The term stuck, spread, and got translated. In Germany, katzenfresser, also cat eaters, is used to insult Italians generally. Many of these insults have become more acceptable parts of language over time. In English, the French, formerly frog eaters, have become the animal itself, frogs. And the Germans, cabbage eaters, have become just the vegetable, krauts. The terms have also been co-opted into local culture. Kaskopf, a German insult for the Dutch, survived the trip to the New World and is now a welcome element of the identity of Wisconsin. That's right, all the sports fans with the big blocks of cheese on their head. If we apply our magical thinking from above... We can see why food-based insults from other cultures are powerful. The eaters of foods that disgust us take on the properties of the food itself. They, themselves, begin to disgust us and become soiled or unclean in the process. At first, we are simply grossed out by their food, perhaps the smells, the tastes or textures, or mode of preparation. Over time, though, 
discuss spreads, and mates with morality. Over time, we begin to be disgusted by their habits, the way they dress, the way they talk and look. We feel they contaminate us with their dirt and odor and contagion, whether moral or physical. In other words, they are not like us, we who are tidy and healthful and pure and clean, and of course natural. While we perceive these distinctions such as clean versus dirty as absolute, they're actually quite flexible over time. For instance, 19th century European or North American descriptions of food often center on robustness and solidity, hardiness, good, as opposed to the sickliness that characterize malnutrition and diseases of deprivation that are almost unheard of today, rickets, for instance. My own grandparents use that language about food, meals which would stick to your ribs, or foods which would fill you right up. And yet rarely does anyone today refer to extra padding or being completely full as virtues. Now, let's recap. Humans have lots of funny quirks, and here are three. Number one, we make magic rules about how food works. Number two, we use those rules to define moral boundaries. And number three, we then get upset or disgusted if we break those rules or go outside those boundaries. And sometimes we get upset if other people do too. Now, this situation is complicated by the fact that, number four, some people who understand that we do one through number three will use those two things to make money and or create an emotional response in you. For instance, witness this extraordinary telling passage from Proteinaholic as Dr. Davis, who will shortly become apparent as a vegan, describes his emotional relationship with a simple cheeseburger. Here's what he says. I find cheeseburgers repulsive. Look at a picture of a cheeseburger and think how ugly it looks, so bland and colorless. I also picture the greasy stove where the meat was cooked, all black and oily. I picture some teenage kid listlessly flipping the frozen meat without any care for its preparation. I picture the slaughterhouse where that meat actually came from. I imagine the horrible life and death of the cow itself, not to mention all the chemicals and antibiotics it was fed before its flesh was mixed with pink slime to become ground meat. I then picture that slime building up in my vessels and invading the cells that make up my body. After eating that burger, I would begin to feel bloated and disgusted. I would get indigestion and experience fatigue. I can even picture the fat forming on my organs and slowing me down, sapping my vigor and will to live. That's Disgust Morality 101 right there. Hits you right in the soul as you digest that cheeseburger of shame. Of course, it's very easy to flip the script on the whole thing. I'll have a go myself with one of my own favorite foods. Here goes. Could there be a better meat than kangaroo? Kangaroos don't suffer. Every single kangaroo steak in existence is hunted, not farmed, and the way they meet their end is a lot better than the slow, grinding lack of respect we afford to old people. One crisp Australian witching hour, right before the southern hemisphere sun makes the land glow and throb with its morning redness, they're winkled off this mortal coil with an efficient kind of dignity. No dirty feedlots, no factory farms, no all-grain diet, no fuss. It isn't just organic, it's wild. Adult males are culled, females and joeys are left to breed in peace, the hunt quota fluctuates yearly with the population, making it one of the most sustainable farming practices in the world. The meat is like steak, but with a thousand times more substance. After you sear it, and it should always be done perfectly seared, not grilled or broiled, the first time your teeth pull the flavors apart will bring you two revelations. One, strong flavors can be a lot more enticing than you thought, 
is you sink into a whole new idea of what meatiness is. And two, we are born, constructed, designed on this green earth to experience this taste of wildness. The moment your teeth clamp down, you are connected to an eternal chain of life-giving from your distant ancestors through countless generations to come. Now, notice how neither passage actually discusses what the meat is, but rather how people think you should feel about it. Both passages are deliberately emotionally evocative, even manipulative. The language groans with laden metaphor and terminology. Neither passage contains facts. Reject them both as instruction manuals on how to eat. Now let's talk about transcendence through obedience. Centuries ago, knowing what food was rotten, spoiled, unclean, or wrong was a matter of life or death. Back then, the relationships between ritual, magic, social order, and safety were more clear. If you didn't do the right things in the right way, you were in big trouble, and so was your team. Avoiding a certain food or a way of eating for your magical reasons relating to impurity had the side benefit of preventing us from snacking on ringworm or botulinum. Perhaps this evolutionary past is why magic and morality tend to have a certain appealing truthiness for humans. Morality was simply an attempt to exert control and make sense of an often uncontrollable and nonsensical world. Now at a time when we feel threatened, and yet we are safer than ever, magic and morality remain powerful forces. Magic and morality feel like they help us make sense of things. People are grossed out by those who eat GMOs, or those who eat meat or those who eat meat that isn't grass-fed, or those who eat meat that isn't bacon. Every so often, a new demon food surfaces, like sugar, a toxin du jour that's sure to kill you. Of course, the carbohydrates in dangerous cookies and healthy beets are broken down into the very same sugar molecule, glucose, shortly after you eat them. Now, magic and morality hold a particular promise. If you just get it all right, you'll achieve transcendence. That's right, if you get it right, you won't hurt, you won't hunger, you won't feel unworthy or unloved or tremble in the face of life's onslaught. You won't be doing the moral equivalent of wearing Hitler's cardigan like a sucker. You will be eating clean. And that's something, damn it. Yet here's the rather painful truth. The realistic answer to, what should I eat to preserve my health, is awfully boring. No secrets, no magic. But if we imagine that what we eat is now a problem to be solved, well, then things get exciting. Something is wrong with what we're eating. We have a project. We must put the universe in order. We must cleanse the dirt, put our house in order, and root out the impurities. Of course, if you've tried going down this road, you'll know that past a certain point, you weren't any happier, or healthier, or saner. So with this all said, what to do next? Well, here are some tips from Precision Nutrition. If you're weird about food, It's okay. We're all at least a little weird about food. We've been weird about food for thousands of years, and that weirdness once protected us from poisoning. Thankfully, now you have other options besides magical thinking and superstition. If you feel rigid, anxious, or paranoid about your food, here's how to escape the culinary cult. To begin with, reject moral descriptions of food. Food isn't good or bad, unless it's actually dirty, like say you just dropped your ice cream cone into the cat's litter box, There's no such thing as clean eating. Be skeptical of emotionally manipulative language. Words like poison and toxins and disgusting and vitality and natural are designed to press your symbolic buttons and make you respond instinctively rather than rationally. And also check your head. 
What did you feel or think as you've been listening to this article? Notice your own emotions, thoughts, and assumptions. Take a moment and jot down a few notes. What do you believe about food? What is clean and dirty food to you, and why? And also notice any strong reactions. If you feel excessively disgusted by otherwise innocuous foods, I know, I know, that pumpkin spice latte is death in a cup, but bear with me. This strong aversion may be telling you that your food boundaries may be too stringent. By now, it probably won't surprise you that people with disordered eating tend to moralize food and or feel revolted by bad foods or bad eating habits. They may feel guilty, anxious, and or ashamed when they eat the wrong things or in the wrong way or at the wrong time. If you notice strong emotional reactions to particular foods, or you find yourself making and breaking even stricter rules, be curious about this. And get support. If you struggle with food, trained and caring experts can help. If you want to learn how to eat well without strict rules about good and bad foods and habits, without trying to be in control, then losing control over and over, without having clean eating take over your life, and or anxiety, shame, fear, guilt, or regret, then consider working with a nutrition coach. Now, you might also be somebody who doesn't struggle with food or food rules, but perhaps you still want to get in shape and feel stronger or more confident or just have more energy to get through your busy day. Well, we can help with that too. Our Precision Nutrition Coaching Program helps give men and women the tools they need to define healthy eating outside the bounds of fad diets and other nonsensical food rules. Make sure to check us out. This has been Bryce from Precision Nutrition reading today's article, Why Clean Eating is Bad for You, The Damaging Psychology Behind the Latest Health Fad, by James Heathers, PhD. You can read the article online yourself at precisionnutrition.com forward slash clean dash eating dash bad dash for dash you. Thanks for listening, everyone, and have a great day. Okay, everyone, that's it for this week's edition of Precision Nutrition's Eat, Move, and Live Better podcast. For more information about how to eat, move, and live better yourself, and for some awesome free nutrition and health resources, come visit us on the web at www.precisionnutrition.com. You could also visit us on Facebook or on Twitter at InsidePN. Talk to you next time.